Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be together again, quote unquote, together. And I, I certainly, I hope you're doing well, uh, despite the unprecedented times uh, that we're living in. And, and look, as, uh, as Will was saying earlier, I, I really want to encourage you, especially now more than ever, of the importance of connecting with other people. Uh, and the efforts that we're doing. So, so whether, look, if it's the old-fashioned way, you pick up a phone and you call some folks, uh, begin to make your way through the directory. If somebody comes on your heart, on your mind, and you have some time, give them a call. Uh, it could be a text. It could be an email. Uh, it could be some of these online meetings that are becoming so prevalent now during this time. Um, but look for ways to be connecting with other people. There, there's just something about being able to look into someone's face and to see what's going on there and to hear the tone of their voice. And, and so we want to encourage you to be doing that during this time. Uh, and if you've never been involved in a small group before, now's a super time uh, to begin to jump in. And uh, literally, uh, we have something going on every night and day of the week uh, with our Monday night men and our Tuesday night group and our Wednesday night and so on and so forth. So look for a place or a way to get involved or perhaps even multiple ways uh, to do so. This week as I was praying with uh, some of the other leaders here at Calvary, a picture sort of entered into my mind of a person uh, that found themselves in the midst of an earthquake of some sorts or, or they were on a ship and the ship was rocking and something unexpected came their way, and they quickly reached over to grab for something that would steady them. And I feel like that's what we're doing this morning, you know, because so much of what we are familiar with in our society uh, has been shaken uh, in these last couple of weeks, uh, this last month or so. People are getting sick with this virus that we don't fully even understand yet. Many are even dying from this virus. The stock market is plummeting. Recently, the Treasury Secretary came out and said we could see unemployment as high as 20%. Increasingly, it looks as if we may move from a social distancing request to something uh, like an enforced quarantine. Uh, we're without the basics of our society. Everything that we have known and were familiar with and was a confidence uh, for us has been shaken. And it's times like this that we look for something solid to grab onto. And I can think of no better place but to look to the Lord and to look to his word, which we plan to do today. And so today we're going to be jumping in once more to Mark chapter 11. And so if you have your Bible, would you please take a moment and would you open it? And as you're doing so, I want to remind you, as Will did and as Josh did earlier, set aside this time. You know, so often when we're on our computers, so often when we're watching something on the television screen, uh, we're busy doing other things, we're multitasking. Now is a good time, however, to put aside all the distractions so that you can just come into the presence of the Lord, just like you do on a Sunday morning, that you can come into his presence for an hour or so and you can hear from him. And so as you're preparing to, to turn to, or if you already have, to Mark 11, let's just take a moment to pray together. And Father, as we enter now into your word, we know, Lord, that your word is truth. Lord, we know that your word is a rock, and it forms a solid foundation. And Lord, we want to stand upon that foundation. We want to come in a way that is uh, unhindered and without distraction, so that we might hear from you. And we ask that you would bless our effort to do so, that you will come and you will meet with your children, that you will speak, Lord, to our hearts. You will bless your word, as you, often, you so faithfully and so often do. And so bless your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, Mark chapter 11 marks a significant transition in the book of Mark. Uh, Mark chapter 1 through 10, uh, and then Mark chapter 11 through the end of the book. Uh, Mark, as you know, as we've been talking about, if you've been here studying with us, you know that the book of Mark really presents Jesus as a servant. And from chapters 1 through 10, you see Jesus living his life as a servant to people. And so constant interruptions, caring for people, meeting people's needs, and so on. Here now, as we come to chapter 11 through the end of the book, we see not just Jesus living as a servant, but Jesus giving his life as a servant. And we come now to what is commonly referred to as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem of our Lord, which is the title of our sermon today. This passage you can find, uh, or this event you can find recorded in all four of the Gospels, and as I have often done in our study of Mark, I'll do it again, I'll point out to you, you can see it in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, here in our passage in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. In the book of Luke, you read of it in the 19th chapter, verses 28 to 44, and then John's gospel also records Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem in John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. Now you recall, and it's good by the way, to know that, to go back, to look to those different passages because each one of those witnesses have slightly uh, different insights that they include that perhaps the other one didn't. And so it gives us this fuller picture of what that day was like when the Lord entered into the holy city there. Now you recall back in Mark chapter 10, verse 1, that we read, and Jesus left there, the there being Galilee, he left Galilee and he went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he began to teach them. Well, that trek from Galilee down to Jerusalem ultimately culminated in his arrival in the city of, of Jerusalem, the event that we're looking at today uh, in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. It culminates in the triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Now, none of the gospel writers actually tell us how long that journey took. It, it may have taken two weeks. If they slowed things down, it may have taken a month or so. But one way or another, Jesus and his disciples begin to make their way from village to village to village, caring for people as they go, uh, the events that we saw in Jericho and other places there. Uh, and now they have come to Jerusalem. And as we come now here to Mark chapter 11, verse 1, we come to the final week of Jesus's life. And this week, we can be much more precise about than what this last month might have looked like for him. Because on each day of this week, there are different events that are occurring in what becomes the final week of Jesus's earthly life. And the first of those events that we have presented to us here is what is commonly referred to as Palm Sunday. And so we know this event took place on a Sunday, and because the crowds that had gathered began to lay out the palms on the streets, as we're going to see tonight, the palm branches on the streets, this event becomes known as Palm Sunday. Let me read it to you and follow along, please. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and send it back here immediately. 
Verse 4, And they went away, and they found a colt tied at the door outside in the street. And they untied it, and some of those standing there said, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and so they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus comes to Jerusalem. Now, if you were just reading the Gospel of Mark, you might conclude that this is Jesus' first visit to Jerusalem, because nowhere else in Mark's gospel, and very few times in those synoptic gospels that we talk about of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, very few times and no time in Mark, uh, is there any mention that Jesus has ever been in Jerusalem. John's gospel, however, records frequent occurrences of Jesus making his way down to Jerusalem. And so when you read John's gospel, what you discover is that Jesus regularly went up to Jerusalem to celebrate the great feast. And so we read in John chapter 2, very early on in the ministry of Christ, that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We read in John chapter 5, verse 1, and there was a feast of the Jews. It's probably the second year or so of his ministry, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And then we read in John chapter 7, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, that Jesus went up. Not publicly, but in private. And so again and again, Jesus would go down year after year as every devout Jewish male who lived in somewhat of a proximity to Jerusalem would do so. They would go down to Jerusalem to celebrate the various feasts. And Jesus is doing that yet again. And so returning this time to Jerusalem for the final time in his earthly life, this time he comes prepared to present himself openly to the Jewish people. This time he comes to present himself as their Messiah and as their king. And so he comes out of Jericho, excuse me, he comes out of Jericho, as we saw uh, in one of our previous studies. Jericho is about 15 miles away from Jerusalem. And as he does so, he comes on the road that would ultimately ascend the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. Now, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know that the Mount of Olives stands right there uh, next to Jerusalem. There's a little valley in between the two. Uh, on the opposite side of the Mount of Olives, so Jerusalem being on one side, on the opposite side of the Mount of Olives, would be the cities of Bethany and Bethphage, and further out would be the city of Jericho. And so as you begin to ascend the Mount of Olives, you're going to come uh, through Bethany, which is about five miles away, into the little town, smaller town of Bethpage, which was about two miles away. And at some time between Bethany and Bethpage, as you come around a particular bend in the road, you can see Jerusalem. It's about three miles away uh, that you can begin to pick up in the distance the large city, the large town, the temple, all of those things that were associated with Jerusalem. And it's at this point that Jesus stops. He instructs a couple of his disciples to go ahead into the village in front of them and to steal somebody's donkey. Uh, of course, I'm kidding. He doesn't tell them to steal the donkey there. But it seems that that's what the disciples think, because you'll notice Jesus quickly says, 
and if anyone says anything to you. So I, I imagine he says, look, I want to go into the town and you're going to find a donkey, take it. And they're like, what? And, you know, on their face, it's clear, like, what's he telling us to do? Is this a prank or something? Uh, and Jesus says, look, it's going to be okay. He says in verse 3 of Mark 11, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. So Jesus is not stealing somebody's donkey here, someone's colt. It's almost certain that he had actually previously set the whole thing up. That maybe in a previous trip down into this area, he and one of his disciples got talking and the disciple, if you ever need anything, you know, someday I'm going to need something and so on and so forth. And they, they worked this whole thing out. And as we saw in our reading this morning, Jesus is about to enter into Jerusalem and he's going to do so on this, this baby donkey, this colt, the foal of a donkey. And there's a ton of symbolism um, that is going on here. And there's actually some rabbinic tradi tradition that Jesus is sort of giving a head nod to in this particular decision. Let's look at those. As far as symbolism is concerned, you recall that at the time of Christ that the Roman Empire controlled Israel much as they controlled uh, the whole known world in the first century. And the Romans had a tradition, as the Romans would go forth to conquer and they would defeat a particular city, the victorious general would approach the city either riding a white horse or a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey here. And if they came riding a white horse, then the inhabitants of that city knew that he was coming to judge and to destroy that city. If that same Roman military leader, general, whatever it might be, came in riding a donkey, which wasn't really a despised, sort of embarrassed beast back then, it just was what it was. If he came in riding a donkey, then they knew that that leader meant for peace. And so Jesus's decision to come riding into the city on the foal of a donkey, that was a statement by the Lord that he was coming in peace and to bring peace. And in doing this, he's making a statement about the kind of king that he is going to be. He was coming in lowliness and in meekness and in keeping with the theme of the book of Mark, he was coming as a servant. And Jesus knows what people are going to think and how they're going to respond to that as he makes this decision. Now, in addition to the practice of the Roman authorities, there was a rabbinic tradition, rabbinic rabbi, the teaching of the rabbis. And there was a teaching of the rabbis in Jesus' day that if Israel was prepared at the time of the coming of the Messiah, that the Messiah would ride into their city on a horse. And if Israel was not prepared at the time of the coming of the Messiah, he would come riding in on the colt, the foal of a donkey. And Jesus is aware of that teaching as well. And so what I think Jesus does here, among other things, is he looks at both the tradition of the rabbis and the practice of the Romans of his day. And in a sense, he says, you know, I can work with that. I can uh, use that. And in fact, it was prophesied of old that he would work with that, and he would use that. Because we read this in Zechariah chapter 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. <clears throat> he is humble, and he is mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus knew what he was doing. And he sets the whole thing up, that he might enter into the city of Jerusalem in this way, at this time, and even as we're going to see on this very day. It was common among the prophets of Israel 
that when their message, their words failed to move the people, that the prophets then would sort of change direction. And rather than just speaking their words, they might physically demonstrate their words. We saw that example in the book of, in our study of the book of Hosea when we were here together uh, not too long ago, maybe less than a year ago. And it's almost as if they were saying, look, if you won't hear what I have to say, well, then you will be compelled to see what I have to say. And that's the method that Jesus is employing here. It's a deliberate, dramatic claim to be the Messiah and a particular Messiah or type of Messiah at that. And so Jesus sends forward a few of his disciples on ahead of him. Likely somewhere between Bethany and Bethpage, he sends them up ahead to Bethpage. He tells them to acquire a colt there for them. He says to them, if anybody gives you any trouble, give them the password. The password being the Lord has need of it. Verse 4 and following, and they went away. They found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus has said, and so they let them go. Just as Jesus said these things would go down, they go down. And this is just one more instance out of many in our study of the Gospels where Jesus shows his clear supernatural knowledge of events that would take place even before they had taken place. Verse 7 goes on. It says, they brought, to the cult, they brought the cult to Jesus. They threw the cloaks on it, and he sat on it. The people throw their cloaks on this little donkey creating, if you will, a makeshift saddle for the Lord to sit on. And of course, typically, a colt that had never been ridden before, as we learned this one was in verse 2, would balk at the idea of someone climbing up on it to be seated on it. And yet somehow this colt somehow seems to understand who it is that is going to be seated on top of it and doesn't buck or fight in any way whatsoever, but rather it seems gladly receives the burden upon its back. Additionally, we notice that the people begin to spread out their cloaks and they begin to spread out leafy branches on the street. If you will, they're, they're laying out a red carpet for the Lord to come into the city of Jerusalem. And again, it's John who tells us that the type of branches were palm branches, which is why we call this Palm Sunday. Waving their branches, welcoming the Lord, laying out the red carpet. This particular crowd of people acknowledging who Jesus was and declaring him to be the Messiah, as we'll see in just a moment here. Let's go on. Notice in verse 9, it says that they begin to shout out and cause, it doesn't say this exactly, but they begin to shout out and cause a great commotion. They begin to say things like Hosanna. It's not just say, shout things like Hosanna. They shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David and Hosanna in the highest. Four different statements that they cry, they cry out here. And so much about what is going on here, it seems to be so out of character for the Lord. Because as you know, we've been studying Mark together, if you've been with us, so often Jesus would be seen hiding the fact of who he was. And as he talked with people, interacted with people, and they'd be all excited about who he was, he would tell them not to tell anyone. Just sort of go home. Don't make a commotion about these things. So often we've seen him do that. 
And for most of his ministry, Jesus did everything he could to discourage people from publicly celebrating him as the Messiah. But here, Jesus not only sets this parade up, but he clearly makes no attempt to dampen the crowd's fervor as the parade gets going. And so Jesus is not quietly sneaking into the city of Jerusalem. And don't forget, there are many people in that city that want to kill him, and they will in four or five days. <coughs> he's not quietly sneaking in. Rather, very publicly, he's announcing to the whole city the hour of his arrival. And this crowd of people that is around the Lord, we learn they're yelling as a part of this procession. And so it's John that tells us they were crying out, John 12, 13. Matthew and Mark tell us that the people were shouting. We read that in Matthew 21 and in Mark 11. And Luke tells us that there was a multitude that were rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice. And so this is not some little procession that might go unnoticed. In fact, as we read in Luke's account of this event, the very people that one Jesus probably wanted to uh, not to notice him coming in, the religious leaders they were that were so opposed to him, they take notice of him. We read in Luke 19.39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples because of the implications of all that is going on in this scene. Jesus is not just sneaking into Jerusalem. Jesus is publicly entering into Jerusalem. And these are not some overly excited disciples enthused to see their favorite rabbi who they haven't seen in quite some time. Everything that is going on here, everything about this event is declaring that this crowd believes that Jesus is the Messiah. He's riding in on the city, into the, the city on the foal of a donkey, and the crowds are shouting out passages from Psalm 118 a portion of the psalm that the Jewish people were looking to for hundreds of years as pertaining to the coming of their Messiah. And they're saying, Hosanna. I want to break down the four statements that they make. They say, Hosanna. Now, the word Hosanna has come to mean sort of in our day this exclamation of praise. You know, So you might be excited, much like we would say hallelujah or something like that. But in that day, it literally meant save us now or save us, we beg of you. And so they're calling out Hosanna, but really what they were thinking is they were saying, save us, save us now, save us, we beg of you. And as they cry out Hosanna, what they're saying is deliver us, bring salvation from these Roman oppressors that are all about us. Remember, we are at the time of the Passover. And the city would have swelled with hundreds of thousands of Jewish visitors. And at the same time, it would have swelled with thousands of Roman soldiers as well to keep order within the city. These guys are saying, deliver us from these Roman oppressors. <coughs> and we see that they're looking for a Messiah who would free them politically from the Romans. Second thing they cry out is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that was a clear recognition by the crowd in that day of who Jesus was. This is a clear statement of who they believe Jesus was. 
In that day, the phrase, he who comes, was a reference to the Messiah. It was one more title of the Messiah. And they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These folks are crying out that Jesus is the one. They go on, they say, blessed is the coming of our father. Uh, They say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Again, the thought that the kingdom of David is about to once again be reinstituted and that Jesus Christ will be seated on the throne of David. And finally, they cry out, Hosanna in the highest, which is a cry for God to bring deliverance from the highest heights of heaven and to do so through this man that is seated here on this donkey. And so no wonder the religious leaders were so opposed to all that was happening. No wonder that they demanded that Jesus silence his disciples. They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus will not. And Jesus does not. Because this day was the day prophesied of old in which Jesus would triumphantly enter into the city of Jerusalem to the cheers of the masses. As Jesus points out, he says, if the people were to be silent, the very stones themselves would cry out in recognition of this day. Luke chapter 19, verse 40. You see, the day that Jesus came riding into the city of Jerusalem was a day that had been prophesied in the Old Testament. And this is the day that is the fulfillment of Daniel's so-called 70-week prophecy, which we read about in Daniel chapter 9. Now that prophecy, it says this, and you can go back, it's a beautiful passage, you can look, but we'll put it up here on the screen. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem... Until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Or, to put it more directly, 69 weeks. Now that term weeks was a term that the Jewish people used, much like we use the word decades in our language. And whereas a decade is 10 years, a week for the Jewish people meant a period of seven years. And what Daniel is prophesying there in Daniel chapter 9 is that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and remember, Daniel is in Babylon in captivity because Jerusalem had been ransacked by the Babylonian Empire and destroyed. And so Daniel is prophesying that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, there would be a period of seven weeks and 62 weeks, or 69 weeks. 69 seven-year periods, or 483 years. Until, notice what verse 25 says, 483 years until Messiah the Prince should come. Now the Bible gives us the exact date of when that decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was given. And in a previous study of ours here at Calvary Mercer, we studied it maybe three, four years ago when we were looking at the book of Nehemiah. In the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, Artaxerxes, the king, issues a decree for Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem and that he might begin the process of restoring and rebuilding the city. Again, go back and read that chapter. This is chapter 2 of the book of Nehemiah. And it begins this way. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year, of King Artaxerxes. Now, we know when Artaxerxes began to rule, and so we can figure out when the 20th year of his rule was. 
It says, Now in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I, Nehemiah, took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Now that city that Nehemiah is speaking of, that city that he talks about, the place of his father's graves, the city that lies in ruins, the city whose gates have been destroyed, the city that he's referring to is Jerusalem. And so here, Nehemiah, some 140 years after the city had been destroyed, finds himself grieving over the fact that the city continues to lay in ruins. Continuing on, verse 4, the king said to me, well, what are you requesting? And so Nehemiah said a quick prayer to himself, to the God of heaven. And he said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild the city. That there, that's the ask by Nehemiah. And notice Nehemiah in verse 6, he asks a few questions. How long are you going to be gone? You know, what are you going to need? All those kinds of things. And the king said that to him. How long will you be gone? When will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. That is the decree to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. And that was 453 years before the coming of Jesus as a babe in Bethlehem and and some 483 years before his arrival there on this particular Palm Sunday morning. This is the day that Messiah the Prince would be presented to the people of Israel. And so the one who had repeatedly told the people not to tell others who he was was now orchestrating his entrance into Jerusalem in such a way as to draw all eyes unto himself. And many people receive that, the multitude that's gathered around him. Sadly, however, the vast majority of the people, as will be evident just a few days later, and all of the leaders, especially the officials, did not receive him. This Coming to Jerusalem in this particular way was Israel's final and most apparent opportunity to receive and to acknowledge their king. But as John would write in the opening chapter of his gospel, he had come unto his own, but his own did not receive him. John chapter 1, verse 11. There are some here this day that receive, but Jesus knows what awaits him in less than a week's time. And he knows what awaits this city as a result of their rejection of him. Which is why Luke, in his account of this particular event, tells us that Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem weeping over the city. I want to read it to you. Luke 19, beginning at verse 41, it says, And when Jesus drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, 
and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the day of your visitation. How desperately Jesus wanted them to receive them, but they did not. Now we have one more verse this morning. It's found in verse 11. It says, And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now John, in his gospel, has made it clear to us that a price has been put on the head of Jesus Christ by the authorities that were looking for him. John eleven fifty seven 57 says, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, that they should let them know so that they could arrest him. And despite that threat, Jesus comes into Jerusalem in, as we saw, the most visible way possible, and he goes to the most visible of places in Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. You'll notice also who he goes to the temple with. Mark 11, 11 tells us he went there with the 12, <coughs> which is a rather remarkable statement and an indicator of just what sort of men these were. There's a price on Jesus' head, and yet they go with him to this most visible of places. Now, when it says that Jesus went into the temple, of course, that doesn't mean the building of the temple, but rather the temple precincts. Because remember, virtually nobody went into the temple building uh, in and of itself except the priest. And only the priest went into the temple, and the vast majority of them weren't even allowed in uh, to all portions of the temple. Only the high priest could go into what we call the Holy of Holies. The people, the Jewish people, they remained out in the courts, the courts that were in front of the temple or the various porches that were set up along the sides of the temples where the rabbis could teach their disciples. And so here it is, it's late on a Sunday afternoon, it's early evening on a Sunday evening, and Jesus comes into the courts, looks around at everything, and then he quietly departs and heads back to Bethany where he would sleep before returning to Jerusalem again the next day. Now you might look at that and you might think, you know, Jesus should have planned his day a little better. He should have budgeted his time more efficiently. The reality is there's a method to what Jesus is doing. Jesus is coming into the city. He's making his way to the temple for a particular reason. He's doing so that he might make an inspection of the temple, and more specifically, the people of the temple. As we'll learn in our next time together later on in chapter 11, as Jesus is inspecting the temple proceedings, what he would have observed was the Gentile courts, which had been desecrated by the, the presence of the various sacrificial animals in the market and the trade. As he took inventory of the temple area there, he would have seen the money changers busily exchanging money and ripping people off. He would have taken notice of the way in which that the people had made this house of prayer, as he calls it, into a den of robbers. And he would observe a people that had, as another place tells us, a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. And so Jesus comes into the temple area, he takes it all in, and then he quietly slips back out of the city before returning again the next day. During our study today, we've seen a number of different prophecies that are fulfilled by the Lord in Mark chapter 11. His inspection here of the city and the temple, it's one more 
of those fulfillments because once more, Jesus fulfills a prophecy pertaining to God's Messiah, this time from the book of Malachi. We read this, Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. We've looked at that verse before. We know that was fulfilled with John the Baptist. It continues, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. What the Lord has done here in verse 11, Mark 11, verse 11, he has come to his temple suddenly, the one whom they had sought. And he fulfills one more prophecy in the scripture. He's inspecting it, and the, as we'll see, the people came up wanting. They failed the inspection. And so as we close this morning, and we'll spend more time with that, I want to encourage you, read ahead uh, as we begin to look at the remainder of chapter 11. There's some interesting things that are going on there, both some pictures of things, as well as sort of the, uh, the result of this inspection that we see here. But as we close this morning, I'm struck by the fact that Jesus comes into this city that he knows is going to reject him, and he weeps over this city. Isn't that something? You see, Jesus isn't angered by their rejection of him. Rather, he's broken by their rejection of him. Because the Lord loves his people, and he desperately desires to see them come to a right place with him. You know, even this morning, as each of us sit in wherever it is that we're watching this particular event, even this morning we remind ourselves that the Lord loves each one of us desperately. And he desires that each one of us would come to a right place with him, just as he desired that for his children 2,000 years ago. And so as you watch this morning, let me just say this. If you do not yet know the Lord... I want to exhort you this morning with three things, three things that you need to know. Number one is this, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, his expectation. And I can say with absolute certainty that every single person that may come across this video or every single person that comes across this scripture and reads it for themselves, that every one of them have sinned because the Bible is clear, all have sinned and fallen short of God's expectation. The Bible is also clear that the wages of sin is death and separation from our holy God. And finally, the Bible is very clear that God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever would believe on him would not perish. The Bible is clear that Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty of our sin, that Jesus knew the judgment that awaited you and I as a result of our sin and rebellion against him and his word. He knew the judgment that awaited us, and he went and he paid the price instead of us. He paid the price so that none of us would have to. And if you recognize today, as you're watching this, that you need a Savior this morning, then I want to encourage you, take some time before getting up and getting on with the rest of your day, take some time to bow your head where you are 
and in the honesty of your heart, ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins and to receive you as his own. Acknowledge to him that you're a sinner and that you need a savior and that Jesus Christ is your savior. And if you do that in the sincerity of your heart, the Bible is very clear. And on the authority of God's word, I can tell you this, he will hear you and he will forgive you and he will wash you and cleanse you of your sins. The Lord loves you and desires good for you, just as he desired it for his people when he entered into that city some 2,000 years ago. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we do pray for any that are with us right now that may be contemplating the state of their relationship with you, that may perhaps recognize that they are a sinner. And Lord, you and your mercy by your Holy Spirit have opened up their heart and their mind to understand that they fall short of the expectation of God and that they need a Savior. Lord, we pray for those folks right now that they would see and realize and come to know that Jesus Christ alone is their Savior. That as uh, it was quoted in the book of Acts, that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved but the name Christ Jesus the Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would enter into their lives, give them the courage to repent of their sin, to call out to you for a Savior, and that you might enter in and be that Savior to them. And Father, for the, the rest of us that are watching, maybe we already know the Lord, hopefully we do. Lord, I pray that this uh, lesson that we've been presented with this morning of Jesus Christ entering into the city, Lord, I pray that the hard attitude of Christ would become ours. Lord, that we would be broken over those that are lost and don't yet know you. We would be broken over the coming judgment that is to come upon any that will not repent of their sin. Lord, that we would be a servant like Christ, giving our lives on behalf of others. And Lord, that you would be blessed in our efforts to do so. And so we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that it would do a good and lasting and eternal work in each one of our hearts. And we pray that prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close our time together with another worship song.